So welcome to a special edition. Uh, well, let's call this like clerically speaking, extraordinary form. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I like that title. I think that's good. Maybe, maybe I don't know if you'll be able to have time to do it this week, but maybe Nick would make a cool bumper for that one. But, but extraordinary in the sense of just there's more ordinariness to it. Or well, isn't extra more like outside, like above, almost like like it's like it's not. It is not quite. It is not meant. It is not the ordinary, and so it, it it's it's really something special. It's something special and unique. <laughs> Good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so today uh, we're going to do a nice little theological dive into an interesting question. And so today we have as our guest back for a a second time now by himself, uh, taking over the airways uh, on behalf of uh, Saint Bernard's School of Theology. Uh, Daniel Drain. So Daniel, why don't you say hi to the folks and introduce yourself a little bit? And yeah, thank you, Father Harrison. Very glad to be back. Uh, my name is Daniel Drain. I'm a, a PhD candidate, actually, at the John Paul II Institute in Washington D.C. I'm writing a dissertation on, um, broadly speaking, the thought of Hans Urs von Balthasar, but specifically mm-hmm. questions about the relationship between creaturely freedom and God's divine freedom. And for von Balthasar, those questions. Um, really come to their culmination in his theology of redemption and specifically of Christ's descent into the hell on Holy Saturday. So universalism is, is very much my, my wheelhouse, my, my reading house right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm presently employed as an administrator and also a faculty member at St. Bernard's School of Theology and Ministry in Rochester, New York, which offers uh, four master's degrees and a variety of graduate certificates, uh, all synchronously and available digitally. So please check us out if you're interested in what I have to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm noticing that you skipped the area of theology you teach in. Uh, yes. Yes. I'm <laughs> a, I'm a lecturer in pastoral theology. <laughs> did, I, did I cause a wound last time when I made fun of that? <laughs> no, it means I'm a sort of paid cultural commentator. I think so. there you are. So I was, I was talking to a canon, a friend who's a canon lawyer or was working on his canon law degree last night he, about, parish territories and everything and i said you know in a way in the end i think the real pastoral theology is canon law we our canon law courses are in the pastoral theology area so, so I, that's good I agree. yeah yeah it's like uh, what does the what does the church teach here has how it works itself out practically law is mercy institutionalized i think yes so, amen yeah. amen uh so yeah we want to talk about universalism today because so uh I've, i mean i've known daniel digitally for for a couple for a few years now i think and then uh but finally got to meet him up at the conference although he was definitely um running around that weekend uh getting things done and everything but uh it was a great weekend as everyone knows um but we were talking a little bit about this question of universalism so for those who don't know like i want to get him to define it in a second but the reason i wanted to bring him on is at least in the the digital catholic sphere i've been noticing is this question has been re-emerging with a larger and more more boisterous uh uh school who is absolutely pro the notion of universalism and, and these aren't people who are, this isn't your typical thing around Balthazar even, it's just like other church fathers, et cetera. These things are, these questions are reemerging. David Bentley Hart's obviously probably the most prominent of the thinkers out there, yeah. but I thought it would be, you know, I know that Daniel's been uh, dealing with this question a lot. And so I thought I would bring him on to have a little discussion. So I'm going to let him teach us. We're going to sit at his feet for this, this hour here. Um, so maybe we can talk start off because yeah, what is universalism? Let's start, let's start with that. Um, because I think that's, important for people to understand what that means. Sure, sure. So not a super clinical definition, but basically universalism is the idea that um, at the end of the ages, you know, when the eschaton reaches its culmination, uh, all will be redeemed, right? 
No one will mm -hmm. be in hell. Everyone will be partakers of the beatific vision, dwelling with God in Trinitarian communion. There are, I would say, to make a little bit more of a technical distinction, there are sort of soft universalisms and there are hard universalisms. Mm -hmm. um, the soft universalisms would say that all of humanity will be redeemed in the end. No one will be lost. Hard universalisms would extend that to, to the angels and the demons and Satan himself even. That's the sort of most... Mm -hmm. I don't know if it would be fair to call that the extreme universalist position, but but mm -hmm. um, that's a smaller subset of universalism more generally, that the devil himself will sort of march back through hell and return to God in the end. Yeah, um, yeah I think that's important. And the reason I wanted to bring him on about this is because um, as it's been getting a lot of positive stuff online, I... I I hold many reservations towards this, uh, mm -hmm. this as it, and it's, and it's my kind of soft or hard absolute forms at least. Um, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of lingering effects into other areas of theology. If it holds true that I don't think are being dealt with sufficiently. So maybe, but like, why do you, why is it? I have my own ideas about why I think it's becoming popular more again, but why do you think it's reemerging and what is it? What is it that's attractive about this notion Sure. Uh, of universalism um i mean just to speak of the the sort of present ecclesial moment i would say the reemergence of it in popular conversation is due to david bentley hart's book that all shall be saved heaven hell universal salvation and that came out i think 2018 2019 landed with a with uh with a big splash i mean and effectively what hart does in that book is make, uh, and he says this, he makes a, a philosophical case that the idea that God would not eventually redeem everyone is an absurd idea. Mm -hmm. So his, his uh, presentation of it isn't so much from the lens of, say, Christology or the development of conciliar theology or something, but rather more from the position of, of what we would classically call theodicy, the idea that mm -hmm. because of who God is and what it would mean for that God to create, that he cannot but uh, allow the reconciliation of all things to include the redemption of the entire human race. So I'd say, you know, most proximately, it comes from Hart, who um, who writes with such intellect, such rhetoric that um, even for me, on the first, second, and third reads, I was pretty much entirely convinced by his argument mm -hmm. that it is indeed absurd to believe that anyone could end up in hell because. God sort of foresees all and in order to be God could not create a free creature that he then foreknew would be damned. That would not be a just God. That would in fact mm -hmm. be a devil. Um, and, and such are, are similar arguments in the book. So I would say first that book landed, but then Hart has effectively done a sort of media circuit, um, doing all sorts of interviews about his opinion on this, um, responding to negative reviews of the book that have come out. Uh, to the point even where he wrote an, an editorial, I think for the New York Times or some other large publication, but but anyway, he wrote into the editor uh, along the lines of uh, Christians should stop believing in hell. And I, I mean, just to, to put it super generally, um, hell is very difficult for Christians to uphold. Um, difficult in the sort of existential sense of it, it's really, when you think, for example, of loved ones, the last thing you would want to hold is that you could possibly be happy forever if they were lost. So in that sense, it's mm -hmm. a sort of always a, a, an open wound that can be pressed by someone from outside, especially if they ask really piercing questions and seem to have an airtight argument. So when Hart comes along and says that Christians don't need to believe in hell anymore, and indeed that's the sort of universalist that Hart is, uh, hell 
if it exists, which he doesn't think it does, uh, except as a sort of purgative moment, um, hell, if it exists, is not eternal. And so it's not, it's not uh, logically consistent or consistent with the doctrine of God that hell be an eternal dwelling place where man is apart from God. Mm-hmm. And um, I think in some sense, uh, everyone can be found grateful to hear that, that there's no possibility in the end that someone be lost forever. That would be, right. uh, at least on the face of it, good news. Um, mm-hmm. And Hart takes up, I would say, all of the best arguments in the tradition concerning freedom, concerning the nature mm-hmm. of the human person. Um, and he was for quite a while, I think, rather unassailable in terms of this argument. He also he also brooked really no debate. Um, he, he slapped down many Thomistic arguments and said mm-hmm. pretty much that anyone who disagreed with him um, didn't understand him. <laughs> and so in that sense, he, he was also the sort of loudest voice uh, but he also, uh, he writes from a perspective outside of the Roman Catholic tradition. So right. where we might have a sort of safeguard in place in terms of a conciliar definition, he's not beholden to that in the same respect. So, mm-hmm. and it's combined with, with Hart's own brilliance, his, his retranslation of the New Testament and so on. Mm-hmm. He combines his argument with, with a, a reading of technical points in the New Testament Greek that, um, frankly, the way he presents it, if you're not yourself well-versed in that, you're like, okay, this guy must be right. Hmm. Maybe it is absurd to believe what I, what I believed. Right. I will say um, where I agree with Hart and where I think he's valuable is that most of his intellectual career has been about um, the destruction of idols, mm-hmm. the destruction of idols in the sense of um, seeing what is, in fact, a facile conception of God that we ought mm-hmm. not believe in. And there's much of that in his in his book that all shall be saved. Mm-hmm. There really are some bad ways to think about hell that I think we can we can agree right. with him are not sufficient right. for Christian faith for Christian practice. In fact, yeah, some of his most powerful rhetorical moments are when he sort of flips the question on what does it do for you as a human being if you presume that your neighbor will be lost? You really shouldn't bother with them anymore, should you? If if God Himself doesn't care, shouldn't you? Isn't in that, fact, you know, isn't that kind of Calvinist though to presume that. Well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where a lot of uh, Thomistic critiques come from. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, you know, um, I, uh, I've wondered, like, it's just, you have to also start to take the note, like the question of history seriously. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and um, because what is it about our contemporary moment that has suddenly made this resurge in such a way uh, for those who don't know, like in the tradition, like obviously, I mean, um, first you have, you know, you have people like origin and Maximus and stuff like this and, and Gregory and Nyssa or Gregory mm-hmm. Nazianza, one of the Gregory's, maybe yes. both the Gregory's. <laughs> um, but you know, there, there is a, there is a tradition in the Eastern school of this, this notion. Right. And, and um, so this isn't something new, although it, of course, debates around origin are around, is it origin or is it originism? You know, right. like these are all, these are all, and, and they're, they're very important because I think sometimes origin get, is given a, um, a bad look un- unnecessarily. Um, but then it seems to have disappeared for a while as Christianity became kind of the worldview in the West with the middle ages, right? It sudden, and in fact, it almost flipped the opposite direction with Augustine's theories and stuff like this. Right. And now, and then as, but as, as after the enlightenment and especially after like the French revolution and stuff like this, the world has changed significantly about the question of eternity um, to the point where it's like, it's, it's almost 
um, bracketed from life. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And 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 so I've wondered sometimes if if there is like a nascent, and this is going to sound weird to say, I think I said it to you, sent it to you in the text, which is like there's like a nascent hopelessness behind the position. Sure, <laughs> sure. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think I see what you mean. It's it's that. Uh, so so on the one hand, we do say that that um, eternity transcends time. Right. But it all kind of turns on what we mean by that transcendence. Is yeah. it a transcendence that uh, negates time as the thing right. that's done away with when we leave this life, right? Or is it a transcendence where eternity is present to every temporal moment? And, you know, as C.S. Lewis will say in The Great Divorce, uh, those in heaven will look back and see that they were there all along. And those in hell will look back and see that they were always there. You know, is it that sort of idea of um, so transcendent that it's also interior more deeply? Right. Uh, and I think there's a danger in, uh, and I'm not necessarily accusing Hart of this in particular, but there's a danger in universalism of saying that um, this life is so absurd that absolutely nothing we do can apply to eternal consequences. And indeed, right. that's I think a dangerous thread in universalist thinking, namely that um, it makes our freedom um, less powerful and therefore less important uh, as a way of trying to preserve the fact that we could never screw up our salvation. Right. And where you get someone like, like who I study, Hansers von Balthasar, Balthasar's perspective and also Ratzinger's, you know, I, I know who's a, a friend of the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ratzinger's perspective in particular is that uh, absolutely everything in this life matters. And that's precisely yeah. the, the beauty and the weight that the task of human life is that every truly free human act matters and has mm-hmm. eternal consequences. Mm-hmm. And just as far as we don't see that, we're we're missing the point. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, because I think like when, when you're describing maybe Hart's position, I have not read Hart's book yet. I want to, but right now, no chance, no chance. Yeah, uh, um, it tends uh, to cause a crisis on first reading. So I would say not to do it for a while. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, because my sense has been that there's almost a an over emphasis on the philosophical to the neglect of the theological. And by this, I mean, uh, like that notion of time and eternity seems to not like the way at least you presented it. And, but I've, I've seen, you're not the only one who's presented it this way is it's almost like eternity is like the end point in which, uh, the life is kind of summed up and then God makes a judgment upon this. And, 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 but I, as if, but as if it's like a, it's almost, it's, it's, it's hard to describe almost, but it feels like, like eternity doesn't seem to have any presence in the present or the mm-hmm. past. It only has a future. Right. And to me, and so if that's the case, then, or, or they see eternity as, well, God's foreknowledge as if, yeah, I mean, you have to be careful, obviously a process theology, and this is where it gets very complicated with this stuff, right? About how does, how does God relate with time, right? And how does the Trinity interact with time? And I think this is where probably Balthazar comes in a lot uh, um, in terms of well, the, and everything. The anthropological sort of cash out of that set of questions is um, really, can we sin? Right, exactly. <laughs> right. So, cause and, can, and, and on the flip side, can we be virtuous, right? Are we really formed for the next life in this one, one way or the other? Like I, I know it gets dismissed as, uh, well, you know, they'll say, well, yeah, your actions still have consequences because there's still the purgation, which can be a hell for a while type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
my my problem, but I think it in the end, I think it's still a fair question: is where's the value to action anymore and freedom? That's why I was saying this almost seems like a Calvinist thing in a way, except it's a it's a Calvinism bent only in one direction, um, because. Yeah. And I, I've, I've spoken this to a few people who who've dealt with this question, who might be kind of leaning towards the pro-universalism. And I think this can get us into some of the questions around its dangers. And um, because in my own pastoral ministry, mm-hmm. I have had to encounter some very evil things the last few months. Like, yeah. like when I say, like when I say evil, I don't just mean you know criminal. I I mean demonic. Yeah. Right. I mean demonic. Yeah. And I can't help but wonder how that is meaningless anymore. Hmm. And how does the victim, where's justice in there for the victim for like, um, yeah. Like, like if someone is hurt in a very real and damaging way by another through evil actions or demonic actions or whatever it might be. And you say, well, it's okay. They're all going to like, we're all going to be saved in the end. And I know this work. I mean, obviously, this uh, and it can get to another extreme because if you don't bring Christology into it, then everyone's damned, really, right? Yes. Obviously. Um, <clears throat> but like, I guess there's no accountability, like because even that great sinner can still be redeemed, but mm-hmm. there's an accountability of a yeah. recognition: I did this, and I feel like, like in terms, so just in terms of moral theology, as one example, yeah. This is an area that is totally seems to be ignored in the question and its implications on that question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot there. Yeah, that's powerful just in terms of, of the demonic activity. Yeah, I mean, I think just one thing to say is that the, the elementary experience of most Christians is that uh, evil is rampant, right? Mm-hmm. And that that both um, that generates the, the whole sort of drama on a, on a personal basis. Um, desiring a good in a world that's, that's overwhelmingly um, presents us with uh, difficulties in achieving that good. Right. And, and that can be taken to extremes, you know, whether it's actual demonic activity or just simply the, the difficulty of uh, concupiscence. Right. And I think all those things are, you're right. I think all those things can be threatened if we simply separate uh, time and eternity. Yeah. Now I would say from the perspective of on Balthazar and Rotzinger, I mean, they both sound this note that whatever redemption is, um, it's something accomplished only through a confrontation and indeed a dramatic confrontation between my freedom and God's freedom. Mm-hmm. So Balthazar has this great line that, that um, Christ will not redeem us as so much luggage carried against our will across the finish line. You know, it's, that's a paraphrase. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, and Ratzinger puts it this way, Christ frees our freedom from within by making mm-hmm. us more free. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's actually, there's a technical, uh, there's a technical point there in Hart's work where, where he would say that, um, because we don't have the full beatific vision of God in this life, we are never fully free. And because we're never fully free, yeah. we can therefore never fully mortally yeah, yeah. sin. And that's a real difference of, of traditions and understandings of original sin. So that's a, a technical point to set aside. But I think that the more important point and the callback, uh, what you just mentioned about um, this perhaps being too much an exercise of, of reason and of philosophy simply and not beginning from a Christological starting point. I mean, that to me is, is the most important corrective to this whole mm-hmm. conversation, namely that um, there's all sorts of ways to, to think incorrectly about eschatology in our tradition. And the first thing we have to do is recognize that um, what we know of hell or of the state of, of uh, 
the state of the dead after this life, we know of and can experience insofar as Christ himself suffered and died. And as the mm-hmm. Apostles' Creed says, descended to the dead or descended to hell, descensus ad inferos is, is the literal translation, which means uh, it means simply to the dead or the realm of the mm-hmm. dead. It doesn't yet mm-hmm. gain the hell connotations until mm-hmm. later. But the point here is that um, the person who, who suffers the condition of death the most truly is Christ. And so insofar as we talk about the danger of hell, we cannot picture it, we cannot talk about it, we cannot think about it without first realizing that its meaning comes from Christ's experience of it, such that the Roman Catholic tradition actually is quite clear that heaven, hell, and purgatory are not established as final states, final possibilities for men, until Christ is resurrected from the dead. That's when you get actual heaven, actual purgatory, actual hell. Mm-hmm. So any sort of picture thinking of people in a fiery hell that Christ then enters into is just so far that picture thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an idea that's false and needs to be purified in some mm-hmm. sense. Now, that's not to toss aside Dante. There's a lot to say there. There's there's definite beauty and much to be learned from, from the inferno right. and so on. But the idea that hell is a Christological state has exactly. to be the starting point. Has yeah. to be the starting point. Yeah. And I would say in that respect too, just, just by way of method, when von Balthasar who dealt with these questions, um, when he begins to consider, you know, for what made me, for what made me hope, which is the actual title of his work, yeah. Dare We Hope, for what yeah. made me hope, what is, what is it possible for Christians to hope for in terms of salvation? Mm-hmm. He comes to the conclusion that uh, it's not just that we can hope, we actually have a duty to hope for the salvation of all. So I want to affirm <laughs> that. But that duty to hope arises from uh, a certain method or order of approach when we consider hell. And the consideration of hell, he says, has to come about first by gazing at the crucified one and seeing on the cross the one who suffered for my sins and who therefore suffered my fate, the innocent man who suffered my fate, which means a couple of things. In order to think about hell, you have to first look at the crucified Christ. Okay, you have to start there. You can't picture flames, the devil, pitchfork, any of that. You start with Christ. It's very Ignatian. <laughs> it, it is Ignatian. And he situates this in the first week of the Ignatian exercise. Yeah. But in so doing, you recognize that hell exists because I deserve it. And so the first person you picture in hell next to Christ is yourself. And that's, that's the starting point. And then you realize that insofar as I'm redeemed or insofar as it's possible for me to be redeemed, it's insofar as I join myself to Christ who suffers my damnation on my behalf. Right. Mm -hmm. And never from this perspective of like, who's going to be damned? Because in a way, the first question is, well, I know I deserve it. Right. No, I deserve it. But Christ died for me and suffered my death. Right. Which therefore opens up this realm of, I know that hell has to exist because it's my fate. And Christ suffered it. And so it's therefore has something to do with Trinitarian life more generally if Christ takes it into himself. Okay, so, mm-hmm. so hold that for a second. <clears throat> but it's also the case that that the perspective of, of the saints, of the one who actually enters heaven, is not of one who avoided hell, but who joins to Christ's mm-hmm. suffering for his own sake. Mm-hmm. Right. And so one of my main problems with the universalism thing with David Bentley Hart isn't so much the universalism thing. It's that um, hell is actually necessary to affirm for Christians because Christ suffered it for me. Right. It's eternal because he, he, he did it for me and I can never do away with it, even if no one ends up there. Like, let's bracket that question for a minute. It's a Christological state. It's as real as heaven. 
right? Even if it's not populated, we know that it's sort of constituted by Christ's suffering death for us. Yeah. I would say like, and again, like so already right there, there's a connection with like, for example, um, the theology of the sacrament of baptism, right? Which is yeah. not, you know, like, uh, as I like to say a lot, it's not just a one and done thing. It is, in a, it is a permanent living of the death and resurrection of Christ in you, right? Yep. When you're at mass, you are entering into Christ's cross. And like, this is like, cause I think this is part of the problem. And I think this is where Balthazar is so helpful with all of this. And like, this is me as an amateur who's only, you know, who's read a lot of Balthazar, but has not studied him systematically yet. Sure, right. Sure. It, it's like, uh, it is, I think he's trying to say, no, no, you can't, you can't, the only way you can have a, a connection between death and resurrection is through the descent into hell. Yeah. Otherwise. And, and you see that in the church, right? You see, you see an, emphasis on sin to with no hope as maybe you did in the 50s and 60s sometimes with a lot of preaching right or the early 20s or something like that on the flip side what you see today is an emphasis on resurrection as if no, no sin matters right it's actually very hard to even talk about sin to people today yeah. um but what seems to me that balthazar is saying is like no, no no you have to go through the whole pattern of christ's life Yes. And so the mass itself is a way of, of entering into that pattern most perfectly and its pattern being lived out in you. And by like receiving communion, you're receiving that whole pattern anew each and every day. And so it's, um, you, to be Chris, to be united to Christ is to be united even into his descent. Um, and that, that is vital to the Christian life. And that's what actually gives you hope because if yeah. Christ can do that for me, yep, he can, if he can go like, and this is where it's like, yeah, people like say, oh, this sin is too big to for God to forgive. I'm like, no, it's not. If you can actually enter with him, if he can enter into every little thing. And I think this is actually a scandal to Christians. Christ enters your sin when you're sinning. Yep. Yep. And suffers its consequences for you. Yep. Like, so um, going to confession, for example, is a way of, of allowing that to now take effect in me in a, in a deeper way, like right. And everything like that. So uh, it's, yeah, I, sorry, I got a little rambly there. I guess the question, it seems to me then for Balthazar, the descent into hell is the, the, the unifying factor of death and resurrection. Yeah, it in fact is. And I mean, just reflecting on the church's language of baptism, making you a member of the body of Christ. Right. When we're speaking literally about that body, it's the same body that died. Right. And was resurrected from the dead. And that's why we all pass through baptism in order to become members of that one flesh. It's it's part of the nature of becoming a Christian indelibly that you're baptized into his death. And Balthazar is great on so many things. But one of the, the beautiful things he says is that with respect to the mysteries of Christ's life, um, God can sort of freely give access to those to every Christian on an individualized basis. And so... Mm -hmm. For certain people, like the Garden of Olives is their sort of like uniquely uh, accessible prayer thing. And there have been many saints in our tradition who have had, so to speak, visions of hell, visions mm -hmm. of damnation. And usually in these conversations about universalism, um, you know, they'll, they'll throw out examples of the children of Fatima, of other visions, you know, Catherine of, of Siena and so forth, who, who saw flames and torturing and so on. And they raise that as a question, as if that sort of disproves this idea that we can hope for the salvation of all. Mm -hmm. and, and my response to that is that actually simply by virtue of baptism, but also what we mean by Christ really dying, it means that that, that Christ's experience of hell, which is the only one we can actually talk about in our tradition, mm -hmm. Christ's experience of hell is in principle accessible to those who are holy. Mm 
Those who are first detached from their own sin are then able to, and this is just a, a general statement about the mystical life or the spiritual life in general. Mm-hmm. When you've reached a certain point of union with the Lord, where you actually don't have anxiety over sin anymore, the other side of that is where we see all of these saints experience the dark night of the soul. Mm-hmm. Which say that once you've reached this, this sort of feel good union to speak about it really crassly, um, you can then move to a deeper union that doesn't feel like union. And it's precisely no. there that, that hell is accessible to you as something that Christ suffered. And those are the greatest saints who, who recognize in their feelings of abandonment that they are, in fact, more deeply united to the Lord, because that's exactly the condition he suffered of being abandoned by the Father. Right? Yeah. But that's part of our tradition. It's not you can't do away with hell. I, I would love, like, this is one of my projects I would like to work on one day when I'm done my thesis is I wrote a paper in my spiritual theology class in seminary on Mother mm-hmm. Teresa doing a Balthazarian exposition exactly of the saint, right? yes. and, and her darkness and everything that she thought it was and, and what it, what it actually was, yeah. was a real participation. Not, and it's interesting, like, as we're talking, like, no, it wasn't like, I'm like, oh, I got to bring her into conversation with Balthazar now because yeah. it's not just a participation in the darkness of the cross. It's a participation in his hell mm-hmm. to redeem, to share in his redemptive action for the people she serves, which who are also going through the same hell. Yeah. yeah. Right. And that she's suffering uh, their hell on their behalf. This is exactly in that, in that book by Balthazar, dare we hope um, he brings up all these difficult cases of saints who saw hell. He says, you know what? You want to talk about the saints who saw hell? Fine. Let's talk about them. Every single one of them who sees hell acts like Moses, right? They place themselves in front of the wrath of the Lord for the sake of poor sinners. Let me remain here so that others might be saved. That's, the Christological move. That's exactly what Christ does, placing himself in the breach. And because he's God, fully God and fully man, he suffers it more deeply. He suffers the abandonment by the Father more dramatically. But he's also a perfect human being. So even the sort of human elements of pain are more available to him. Balthazar puts it this way, that he suffers he suffers damnation more deeply than is available yeah. to us. So more comprehensively. He's always on the other side of your distance from him. I, yeah. You see, I think I'm not I willing think, to let go of that for the sake of yeah. saying all are saved. Right. Even if we have a duty, we're commanded to hope that all are saved. It's but not literally in scripture. Hell. Not without hell. Right. Exactly. So, so there's a couple of questions with this then, because I think this is going to be helpful for listeners who may not be, have been exposed much to the question, et cetera. Because mm-hmm. I think at the heart of the question, uh, Tom Gourlay brought this up to me and I thought it was a good point. He goes, the heart of the question is how powerful is God's love? Yes. Right. And I think I think that's actually I think it, that in many ways that is the heart of the question. But then, of course, the question becomes, how do you understand love? Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I think in intuitively, I think, again, based on what I've been hearing about stuff like heart's position, I feel like that's what's been missing. Yeah. It's essentially like because it doesn't take freedom. It doesn't take it. Act, like there's no analogy to human freedom and divine freedom in in this presentation at all in my opinion uh like not your present his presentation or however there's presented like where's the analogy here oh i'm so i'm too weak of a i'm too creaturely to know god and therefore i can't actually know him and so therefore i can't actually make a free choice and therefore i'm not damned and i think in some ways this is actually how a lot of people think about universalism even if they don't think it through to that extent it's essentially like god is so great i'm so weak but actually, I think that actually places where we're being too humble about our humanity, forgetting about like uh, Ratzinger brings this out a lot. Yep. No, it is truth is hard, but it's actually what we're created for. And there's a capacity for this. 
No, exactly. I mean, we are immortal beings <laughs> for good yeah. or fail, right? Can I could I read a passage yeah. here at this point? Because yeah, this yeah, is sure. I mean, kudos to, to Tom, who's who's a friend. This this is the question. And here's what, what Balthazar has to say about it. He says that this is this is really the hardest question, this this encounter of freedoms. He says, Here we come to deep waters in which every human mind begins to flounder. Can human defiance really resist to the end? the representative assumption of its sins by the incarnate God. Mm -hmm. If one replies to this confidently and flatly, yes, man can do that, and thereby fills hell with naysayers, then the theologians will again have to set up strange distinctions within God's will for grace. And here's a little criticism of sufficient grace and so on uh, from the Thomistic school. He continues, on the other hand, we will not be allowed to say that this latter simply takes the sinner's will by surprise mm -hmm. since his ascent has to be freely given. So let me just underline there that the question really is, um, what's it look like for a creature to be fully and truly free? Because that's ingredient in redemption, no matter what we say. And I would just make the minor point here that Christ and Mary are perfectly free human beings, and and look what they do with respect to salvation, right? Back they to the most free. For the sake of others, exactly. So Balthazar continues, <clears throat> into what sort of darkness are we straying here? Christ's representative assumption of the guilt for sin must certainly not be understood as a magical mechanical exchange. Apart from the cross, I am a sinner and candidate for hell, but on the basis of the cross, my guilt is taken away and I am a candidate for heaven. That's surely not how it works. Without my consent, given that I am a free person, nothing can just have its way with me. But how then are we to understand the grace that is affected through the representative work of Christ and included in that of Moses, Paul, and all others who offer themselves as sacrifices for others? Tentatively, and I really want to underline that this is a speculative position, right? Tentatively, we can say this, that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of absolute freedom, allows us to see within our free spirit what our own true freedom would be that is by confronting us with ourselves, with our own highest possibility. This is the, the theology of, of Gaudi Metzbez 22, right? Christ reveals man to himself, makes clear his most high, high calling. We see even in Christ's descent into hell, the fulfillment of human freedom. That's precisely what we're confronted with, right? Mm -hmm. We would not be able just to say yes to ourselves. Also, the meaningfulness of such a yes and the desire for it are set before us, indeed inspired in us. Do you really want to exist forevermore in contradiction with yourself? And that's a good, right there is a good definition of what hell would have to be, to exist mm -hmm. forever in contradiction with yourself, right? He says, grace can advance as far as that. And if one wishes to keep to the distinctions noted above, then one would have to say, grace is efficacious when it presents my freedom with an image of itself so evident that it cannot do other than freely seize itself, right? To push on further into these deep waters is not permitted to us. We have to stop at this observation. It would be in God's power to allow the grace that flows into the world from the self-sacrifice of his son to grow powerful enough to become his efficacious grace for all sinners. But precisely this is something for which we can only hope. So a couple of distinctions are made there, right? Uh, insofar as we're saved, we're saved uh, by consenting to it. But what that consent looks like is, is very interesting and has been nuanced really in the 20th and 21st century theology. That consent would have to look like my freedom being freed from within by being confronted with, with my, mm -hmm. high, my 
you know, my truest self or, or the perfection of human, of human nature, the perfection of human freedom. So precisely by Christ who, who as true God and true man freely suffers the effects of damnation, that's what I'm confronted with at my lowest moments. Right. Mm -hmm. In other words, because Christ has conquered death, the last enemy, it's now the case that death is our passage to life, which means that even when we sin, just as you were saying, Father Harrison, um, that too is now, uh, not that you sin in order to be saved, but that too is where we can encounter Christ in the effects of our sin, right? That's not closed to him. And if right. we're going to talk about the salvation of all people, it's it's through our redemption despite our sinfulness, but not, right. not without it, not by eliminating hell as an idea, not by saying that God is, of course, going to save everyone automatically. In a way, Balthazar is saying that if everyone's saved, it's dramatic for each and every individual person, and it involves right. passing through hell. And, and, and that's what we have to hope for. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's going to be important. I want to get to that in a second. Just as like a little quick aside, but I think it yeah, actually sure. emphasizes what you're saying is, is uh, Christian. I always say to people, too, like they'll only just read Dare We Hope. Yeah, and that's it. It's and actually like, my favorite of his things on hell. But it's yeah, not it's, it's, it's it's not his best, honestly. No. No. And I always say, have you read the end of Christian State of Life? <laughs> and they're like, Christian State of Life was that book. And I'm like, oh, you need yeah. to read this book because at the end there, he talks about, and I think this gets into this notion of like hell is self contradiction essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The person who knowingly refuses their vocation, yeah. and and it, like. And he has a bunch of categories. I don't want to like make people freak out because they thought they had the idea of a vocation and ran away from it or something like that. That's not yes. what he's talking about here. The person who has like full knowledge and full sense that Christ has elected them to something and chooses to not go for it, chooses their own damnation. Right. Because vocation is where you're most free. And thus you are to go away from that is to enter into self-contradiction. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think so. It shows the consistency of his thought throughout his work on the question. So, you know, for the listeners who aren't theologians per se, like, let's, yeah. you know, um, I mean, this is where I get a geek out when I do bonus episodes like this. So I'm not going to worry about too much. But I think I think because I think this is the question. So because it can get it can get it can seem to them. Oh, this seems like technicalities. There's a lot of jumbling about technical terms like freedom, creative, yeah. freedom, yeah, divine, freedom blah, 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 blah. OK. And and and. um. Is Balthazar saying that everyone is saved? No. Right. Why not? Can you can you kind of maybe for the for the lay listener who's not a theologian, can you yeah. can you because I think that's actually I think that's right there. Is this really important for people who too easily think that that's what he says, which is not what he says at all? Because the only sort of Christian perspective about the question of damnation, um, I know that I deserve damnation. Yeah. Right. And I also learned from Christ and the church that when I think about my neighbor the only thing permitted to me is to hope for the best for them, which is mm -hmm. to say that we have, we have one certainty, which is that I deserve damnation within a larger certainty that Christ suffered it, its effects, at least on my behalf. And I can freely unite with that or not, but two, that we are commanded to hope for the salvation of all. And that that's the, the sort of deepest scriptural desire uh, representative of God through the old and new Testament. God desires salvation of all. This is the, the plan of Christ from before the foundation of the, the plan for Christ from before the foundation of the world to unite all things to himself. Right. So on and so mm -hmm. forth. Those are the two scriptural perspectives. When I think about hell, I can only picture myself there. I can't picture a, a whole damned mass of people that I'm somehow outside of looking in, looking in on from the outside. That's the wrong starting point. And I think the the risk of of uh, universalism is that it it um, it aims to deny a conception of hell that itself isn't adequate and should be denied. 
mm-hmm. but that there is a, a sort of proper Catholic perspective on these on these things. Yeah. So I think this is I think that's all really good and important because I, it sounds to me because I think this is one of my other reservations about some of the discussions around this question that I've seen mm-hmm. is that it seems to me Balthazar is respecting the boundaries. Right. Yes. Like, cause like, cause here's the other thing, like, I, cause I've heard this said a few times. Oh yeah. Well, the fathers say, well, you shouldn't really be talking about this question anyways. Even if it is, even if universal is true, it should be looked at very quietly and hesitatingly and stuff like this. Yeah. And I kind of agree. Actually, I quite agree uh, because uh, especially in a mass media age where people can't discern, discern things as easily. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's been one of my things. It's like, it's been taken up too boldly. Yeah. And I and 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 there's like it seems to be, like that's my like, my problem becomes it's like it almost becomes a a weird Hegelianism where the where it's like a philosophical all in all rather than a Christological all in all. And, well, and so this, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, Balthazar calls the the two dangers we have to avoid. On the one hand, is despair. Yeah. That no one's saved. Yeah. Uncertainty on the other. Yeah. Sort of non a non grateful certainty that of course it's going to be this way. Right. Both are are a. a you know, sort of flip side of the same coin of like knowing God better than he knows himself and taking away the, the whole drama of salvation history. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. So then what he seems to be he's saying is essentially um, what we can know is that God's love is powerful enough to save everyone. Yes. What we don't know is whether or not everyone assented to that reality, whether or not I will assent to that reality. Right. Oh, sorry. Right. I will assent to that reality. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then thus, and then, and that's the problem I find is like, yeah, people want to go further than that. And he, I think he's essentially saying, no, no, we actually, as, as, as Christians, that mm-hmm. is the boundary, right? So then that's, I think, the important element there of, of creaturely freedom, right? It's to say, right. no, I am a creature. There are boundaries. And because God is ever greater, that is itself a boundary that has to be respected. And, and you do not cross that line ever. And we can't, well, and, and we can't cross that line. That's absolutely right. But the examples that are, as it were, on the other side of the boundary are the examples of saints, as I was right. mentioned earlier. And and what do they do? They don't avoid the hell thing. <laughs> they try to go there and suffer it for others. So insofar as we consider anyone being in hell, it's always a salvific figure who's, who's suffering its effects so that others don't have to go through it on their own. Hmm. Now, we're still preserving the distinction, you know, that someone who doesn't die in mortal sin and is in close friendship with God immediately goes to heaven. Right. Of course, we're also still preserving the fact that the great majority of us will go through a purgatory. Right. Um, and who knows? I'm I'm definitely more in the C.S. Lewis camp of like that purgatory uh, will take the form of of repentance for my sins concretely, and it might look like you know sins appropriate or uh, punishments and reparations appropriate to the kind of sins. Right. And there's there's where you can kind of recover some of the imagery of of Lewis and of Dante mm-hmm. and so on, where where that's appropriate, but. Um, but what we can't do is affirm that anyone is in hell permanently, um, precisely because the the mystery of hell is redeemed in Christ and not something to picture think our way into as a as a populated place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like for me that's in in a way like when I presented the notion because I'm a hundred percent Balthazarian here too. Yeah. Hell, heaven, hell, purgatory, Christological realities, right? They're all realities of love, yeah, right? Exactly. And, and not just Christological, but also Trinitarian realities, right? And, and, and they have to be Trinitarian because the sun goes to hell, right? And is mm-hmm. upheld by the Holy Spirit in you. With the, like, it's, I love that image of like a stretch. Like, it's just like the elastic band is like stretched to the point of breaking yeah, yeah. almost. Um, but Well, and this I, also, 
I mean, something more about hell is revealed here too, namely that what we mean by hell isn't isn't simply the the you know the the flames, the the brimstone, mm-hmm. the pitchforks. Hell would have to be seeing Christ suffering on your behalf and denying that. Yes, yes. That's why I also because we're preserving that possibility for myself at yes. least. So yeah. okay, two things with that, because yeah, that actually falls into what I was going to say, which is yeah. like if you're to put it, paint an image, if you will, of what hell is, it's and thinking it in like a historical image, I guess, that Jesus dies, he descends into mm-hmm. the place of the dead, and he, he shows himself crucified and suffering in hell. Yeah. And those around him can say, is this the one whom I want to be with and follow or not? And those who say no remain, yeah. right? right. Um, so that's the one thing. And that gets the other issue. One of the other issues I've always had with this kind of bold universalism right. is, or, or even so, anyway, soft or bold, I should say, or, um, but, or sorry, soft or hard, I should say, uh, but um, is in reflecting on those situations where I have encountered evil. Mm-hmm. I have, se- that's why I say I've seen hell. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've seen the person say, who has rejected to see that Christ suffers for them there yep. and thus deny that anything they ever did was wrong. Right. And that's real freedom. Yep. And that's the thing. It's like, so it's this, not a perfect freedom, but it's an exercise of it. Nonetheless. Right. So, so, cause like, and I, this is the issue around that then becomes around like when people say, Oh, I don't have enough knowledge or enough freedom to actually really reject God. I say, you're thinking of God in a non-incarnate form first as a system rather than a person who has now taken on our humanity to right. mediate his presence to us as if I, thus, if I knew more arguments i'd act better right ex- exactly right exactly so but rather no like when the person says we, we, the person refuses to acknowledge they're wrong mm-hmm. and and there are psychological reasons why people do this sometimes because if this because maybe what they did was really quite horrible and the second they accept that that's where the hopelessness comes in right, right. because they're right. like oh my gosh i'm a horrible human being and that's where that, but that's that is the dramatic moment, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's where Christ mm-hmm. can say, "Yeah, you are. You are I'm here. For, I'm and I am here, so you, that doesn't have to be you anymore." That's right, that's right. right. Um, but you have to go through this path first. That moment is accessible to Christ too, and exactly and universalism can deny that He has the power to reach into. It it denies the power of our it denies our capacity for evil, but it also on the flip side denies the efficacy of Christ and the church to actually heal and mitigate that evil and to exactly. release us from our culpability and so forth. Yeah. So when they say, Oh, well, you don't have enough knowledge. I'm like, no, no, they do because they're actually dramatically encountering Christ in the refusal to acknowledge their evil. Right. right. By refusing to acknowledge evil, you're refusing the one who has absorbed that evil into himself and 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 took it on himself so that it doesn't have to overtake you. Yeah. You actually are concretely refusing Christ in your encounter and in your own experience. Yeah. Right. Lutzinger has a great line, and I'll 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 direct you to you, you to this maybe afterward. But he's specifically going after Hegel, and he says, um, for for Jesus, um, evil is not something unreal for him. Good Friday was most real. It wasn't a speculative Good Friday. Yes. Right? Yes. He really yes. conquers evil and dra- and eventually, you know, drags it in chains through the streets as as the the death of the final enemy, right? Um, but we're proud of that. Can you can you expand on that a little bit? Because like that also becomes almost like a that is not Augustinian. 
<laughs> right? I, yeah. I remember I remember my Christology class in seminary. My my prof said, "Is evil real?" And because he was trying to get to the soteriological question, and I said, "Well, there has to be some sense of reality without it becoming an independent reality, because um, um, it has to be like a personal reality, I guess, right? Because otherwise, what is there's not Jesus is literally overcoming nothing, <laughs> you know." There's nothing that there's nothing real to be overcome there. So can I don't know, can you speak to that a bit more about like that notion of evil? Because like if Ratzinger's saying that, how does that jive with Augustine, for example, or something like that, who says that evil is just a privation? Yeah. Well, I mean, on the one hand, of course, I affirm that this, you know, the ontological status of evil is that it's a privation. It doesn't exist right. substantially on its own. But in that sense, um, there's an analog actually in, in science, as far as we understand it, it, sin is more like a black hole than it is like a, a, a vacuum, as it were. It's, it, it's a sort of uh, negatively dense gravity that, that you know, draws the good into itself in a way that, that causes it to dissolve. Hmm. And that's precisely the problem. Um, that's why humanity couldn't free itself from within because we have, you know, concupiscence, original sin, the weight of all of this, that's the final enemy. And how does Christ defeat that final enemy? Not by getting rid of it in some sense, because we still see evil all about sin is still possible. I mean, that, that's a, a whole question about Christianity in general. Like if we say that Christ conquered death, why do people still die? Right. Mm -hmm. But he conquers it. Um, and there's, there's great patristic accounts of this, of, of sort of baiting the devil with his own death. And then, and then, you know, pulling the devil, uh, emptying hell from within precisely because Christ uh, by mm -hmm precisely because Satan, you know, took the bait. But the idea is that um, death is now the path to life. And yeah. so it's negated only as it's now the passageway for all of us, right? So in order for that to be the case, um, it has to have a certain, it, or it at least now has a sort of positive weight to it. If you want to, if you want to talk that way, that, yeah. that death is the path to life. And, and positively that death looks like baptism. Yes. Negatively, it looks like creaturely death where, you know, the separation of body and soul and, and before the, the final judgment. But yeah. So, yeah, uh, there's a little pet theory of mine around Genesis and, mm. and the mm -hmm. story, right? It, it, I, Scott Hahn brings up this point about how like the Hebrew word for serpent is more like a dragon, right? Oh, and sure. I, and I've, I've, I've always had this, like, I've always, uh, I've always had this little pet theory about like, how do you jive? Like if, if death is in the world in creation, how is that like in just in terms of like animals and everything and trees and everything, right. how right. does that jive with the notion of man being created in paradise? Right. right. And I've always wondered this, but my little theory has been that the fall of the angels with the moment of creation affects the created order itself mm -hmm. and brings a death into it. That is not God causing it, but it's actually the fall of the angels. So yeah. man now is born. This is all Christological, right? So man is born to redeem creation. Yes. Yeah, that's and Adam has origin, to die to save yep. Eve, and that's the problem. Is he, and you can only read it that way if you understand what Christ does for us. And yep. thus, man is is actually created to die, yep. and thus through that actually brings about life again, and does bring about a real redemption. Yeah, we fail that, and now God has brought something even greater now because it's now something unitive with God Himself in Christ. Exactly. And, right, and and I think if you could start to see this way, like no, death is life; it has yep. to be life. It's where Christ is. And then that starts to give you hope when you're battling with sin and you to let that truth purify you. Yeah. Right. And to let it just dig into your heart. <laughs> Man, like that's where real, that's where sanctity is found. That's where real human life is found. And it's like, 
I just like wonder, like banging my head, why is it so hard for the people to hear this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, Christ's, Christ's victory over death isn't the victory of a general who, who's, you know, executes the opposing forces afterward. Right. It's one who, as it were, inscripts the enemy force. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. gets their general to, to sort of be, be our leader. Like this is now the path to victory. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which allows, it's precisely what allows Christians to be 11 in the world, precisely because death still predominates and the gospel is still the good news of Christ's defeat over death. That that's how we sort of actively participate in it by dying. Well, yeah. whether it's in every moment or through martyrdom at it's most extreme. Yeah. And now you can understand like, so when I know the, the 20th anniversary of communion, Raskin asks, you know, or, have we taken enough risks essentially? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That can only come from this hope. That's right. Right. Which says Christ is there and I have to be there. And, and it gets to this whole, like, so I do like, yeah, I mean, this, this all explodes together, right? Because yeah, then you understand right. why Dulabak is so important around the, the Corpus Mysticum stuff, right? And, and, and how the three bodies of Christ are all interrelated in the Christian tradition and that it's, and that the church that Eucharist and Christ's historical body have an intimate unity with one another. And when you understand that, and you understand when Paul says we make up for what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. Exactly. I was going to mention that. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. Go. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, that's, that's, I, I mean, not to simply solve a, a scriptural problem conclusively, but, but what can that mean from St. Paul that we make up for what's lacking except um, seeing our crucified Lord who suffers for our sake and freely uniting ourselves to the suffering of those consequences, both for my sake, but for the sake of others who don't yet see that. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, one of the criticisms leveled against Balthazar and that in some sense should be leveled against universalism today is, um, does the idea that we can reasonably hope that all men be saved, does it lessen the missionary impulse? Like right. know, why, why the church, why preach, why do missionary, all of this, yeah. stuff, if we reasonably hope that it's all going to work out anyway, it's precisely because that working out of it anyway, in quotes, is, uh, looks like the personal encounter of Christ with each sinner. And so it's always dramatic and therefore never guaranteed because you can't, Balthazar says at one point, you can't put together general neutral theories about salvation. It's always right. a question of your relationship with Christ. But keeping in mind, of course, the, the, the Lubach stream of salvation is a social reality, right? which is to say that wherever salvation exists, it's, it's the presence of the church in the world. Right. right? Which is why like Vatican II, I think, expands the outside the church, there's no salvation. Right. right. And it takes says, yeah, it's true, actually. It's actually true. It's but actually it's also through, through the church. The church is exactly, exactly right, yeah. and that Christ works through the church for this. I mean, this is a in Ratzinger's uh, the new pagans of the church. This is mm-hmm. his little mm-hmm. bit at the end. It's like suddenly he's talking about this, and he's like, he says, "No, it's that little bit." I, I I don't know if I think he might have changed his position on this one a little bit, anyways. But it's like it's, it's his early stuff. It's fine, yeah. you know. Yeah. But it's like he's I I still like this notion of like that little body of the church suffering for the whole. Yeah, and I mean. Right? You know, you could flip the question and say, is hell outside the church? <laughs> Apparently not anymore. <laughs> no. <laughs> right? But, but, That's the good news. See, I think what we're, what we're saying, I think at a larger question beyond just the universalist question here. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard thing. Like, it takes a lot of purification of the mind because I've, I've even realized it's taken a lot on my end, too. Or, yeah, likewise. Where if we start to understand the Christian reality as something that really involves every aspect of my life, that Christ touches the whole of my being through my baptism— that Christian existence is, you know, um, like tradition is, is, is a living acceptance today of what has come before me 
through yes. the church and passes it on. But it's my choice to say yes or no to that today. Mm-hmm. And thus, there's always, and this is why there's always a need for renewal. Like, like you get away from these quasi mythical understandings of faith, I guess, if you want to say it that way, where, where, mm-hmm. or overly picturesque visions of faith, where it's, it's too linear, which yeah. is more modern than Christian, right? right. Like this right. is part of the problem, but, um, and too simplistic, but at the same time, it's like, it's hard because these are deep questions. And a lot of people, like a lot of people don't want to think about this stuff, even if yeah. they're devout Catholics, yeah. like, how do I understand how Christ is relating me today, that he's confronting me today? Yeah. And I, I would say, I bet you anything, Balthazar would argue the best way to enforce this worldview is go on the exercises. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. 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 And I mean, just to, to go back to an earlier point, when he's giving those clarifications on like when, like how to think about hell, it's also contextualized. Like the moment in the life of a Catholic where you're supposed to think about hell is at the end of week one of the spiritual exercises. Like mm-hmm. there's a sort of safe place where that's supposed to happen with a director and in a certain order and so on. We can't, you know, there's, 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 uh, there's a sandbox to play in for a reason because otherwise you right. get you get mired in in despair or or certainty. You know, I would say with respect to just the shape of the whole Christian life, and this is something I learned from from David L. Schindler and the John Paul II Institute more generally, is that you can really look at the sort of four main features of salvation history as the the general shape of the life of every Christian in particular, namely creation, incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. So you begin with creation, right? You affirm that um, mysteriously it's good that things exist that are not God. And that's the sort of great mystery of creation that God creates out of his great gratuity. And so a Christian is is someone who um, is glad that everything exists and recognizes that they come from a fundamental gratuity in relationship to others. Mm-hmm. That takes the shape of an incarnation, um, namely a, a unity of of yeah, of, of matter and spirit in a way that's meant to take up what's best in the world and unite it with the core of the Trinitarian life. The way that that plays out is always dramatic and takes the shape of crucifixion. So it always passes through a moment of death, right? And so many Christians do not see, they attempt to see their Christian life in a way that's going to go from incarnation to resurrection and forget the crucifixion part, which is just ingredient, right? Uh, for those who you know, who die young, that, that crucifixion simply takes the, the form of, of participating in baptism, right? Mm-hmm. And this is why the church has the language of baptism by desire and so on and so forth, because that's mm-hmm. just an ingredient in becoming part of the Trinitarian communion. But you only get to the resurrection part by passing through the crucifixion part, right? Mm-hmm. And that's precisely, um, I think, the message of the Second Vatican Council. The church's openness to the world is cruciform. It's Christological. It means meeting people in hell, Right. Um, and I think that's quite apt from the council in terms of recognizing the period that we just emerged from. Right. And mm-hmm. so there is a strong hope. I mean, like Ratzinger will go on to say that maybe there's a little too much hopefulness, right. Yeah. A little yeah. too much optimism, maybe, or maybe better words, optimism, I guess I should say like, uh, too much of a trusting of the structures of a fallen world. <laughs> like yeah. you guys, like, look what it just created. Like, let's be careful and maybe see maybe what happens here. Springtime yeah. of the human spirit. Right. right. You know, that, that, uh. But it, it also comes from a real, but again, people need to realize like, cause all, most of us are too young to even know what this was like. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anyone who listens to the podcast who lived during the, I mean, the sec, they, we're getting to that age now where most people who are from the right. second world war are near death, right? Anyone right. who's left. But to like in that period, it's like, it's suddenly there's 20 years with no war and relative peace in the world. Yeah. 
when you start to study history, you realize that's a, not a common phenomenon it in world like history. It looked like turned around. Yeah. yeah. No, right. And so that's where part of that optimism comes from. Yeah. Um, but it's an optim. But when you lose, when you when you lose the folk, when you lose their memory of the past, that's where optimism can get unhealthy sometimes. And I think that's essentially what Rasser gets to is to say, like, wait, guys, like, it's not all good. And he turns out to be right about that, right? Like, that's so, right. Yeah. But um, you know, so we should probably wrap up here in a second. Sure. Um, um, this is awesome. We'll have to do this again because this is great. Um. And I'd like to try and do this once in a while, folks, just to, you know, it might be try to try and do this like once a month with different guests just to talk maybe something more theological, bring different people on like this as a, as a little service. I think I can start getting these things scheduled a bit easier. Plus, it gives me a chance to talk about the stuff without having to necessarily research it. That's I can right. just bring That's it, right. the experts on and I can just riff off that, which is great for me, too. Um, what would you say, like, is there, if you were to take like a pause, like the central... If there's something, because there's always a truth, even in in, in wrong things, mm-hmm. right? What would you say then? The greatest good to come from this whole question of universalism, and the greatest danger lies. Just... Yeah, the the greatest danger is in thinking that you're not involved in your own salvation, mm-hmm. and on the flip side. Uh, another danger <laughs> is to think that your salvation depends entirely upon you. So there's there's the temptation to scrupulosity mm-hmm. and the temptation to um, sloth, right? Both of those yeah. things I think are related here. And and the real uh, positivity to this is is that um, the question of death has been solved, and I get to participate in that solution. Uh, and it's going to take the shape of a martyrdom, whether that's, uh, you know, a martyrdom that, that ends my life or the martyrdom of modern bureaucracy, which is death by a thousand paper cuts, just the slow, careful witness to Christ in the world. But it always takes that shape. And that's not it's it's particular to each each person, um, but it's not unique to me. Like that's that's in some sense what the universal call to holiness looks like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the universalism question, if read correctly, can help us to see that, that um, salvation is in some sense what's most important to God with respect to creation. He does desire to save all, but not without me, right? right. And it'll be yeah. with me in cooperation with the work that Christ has already done, meriting mm-hmm. our salvation. Yeah. Okay, one last question, I guess, actually. If someone was interested in this question but didn't want to get, like, is there something readable ish or like that? I mean, listen, these are all technical questions, right? Sure. But what would you, is there a book or an article or something that you would recommend to the average lay reader who might know a bit about theology, but you know, wants to just be introduced to this question? This is, um, I wouldn't start with Von Balthazar. I wouldn't read David Bentley Hart. I would read a, a new book by Dr. Margaret Turek that Ignatius ah, Press published called Atonement. Yeah. And specifically, um, some of it will be probably too technical, but it, it follows Joseph Ratzinger, John Paul II, Hansers von Balthasar, and a lesser-known theologian, Norbert Hoffman, um, tracking uh, what it looks like for God to be operative in history affecting salvation, and that's, that's called atonement. And in particular, one-third of the book is toward a spiritual theology of atonement, hmm. and it focuses on what sanctity looks like when you understand Christ's Pascal mystery correctly. And I would strongly urge everyone to, to read that because it's, it's accessible. It focuses on um, examples of saints, but it's also 
uh, erudite. So it has that careful balance of like, I don't quite see everything here, but it's raising me up to a new level, but it's also very spiritually edifying. And it says, it says much of, of what I've said, but also inclusive cool. of John Paul II and Ratzinger. So cool. I would direct you to that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks for coming on, Daniel. This is much appreciated. And thanks everyone for listening. And uh, uh, you can find uh, Daniel and everyone at the great school at uh, St. Bernard's in Rochester. So go give them, what's the website again? stbernards.edu, stbernards.edu. Yeah, go give them a check out, especially if you're looking for some online learning. They offer a lot of great options with that. And uh, Can I do one small plug here? Yeah. Uh, over the summers, we offer to anyone in the world one free summer audit so you can you can audit a class with us for free over the summer very cool. particular i'm doing a class on atheism and the atonement over the summer so if you're really interested by this conversation you can come study these things with me over the summer i might take, I might take advantage of a live audit a free audit yeah. myself. Yeah. <laughs> awesome well thanks a lot everyone and we will uh we'll see you next time god bless you thank you god bless you